that I've decided that my love language is breakfast tacos. Um, <laughs> like, I think Gary Smalley or whatever that guy, Chapman, whatever his name is, he left a chapter off the end of the book. But uh, I don't know what it is. When I enjoy a breakfast taco, it was like, man, this is God's goodness on my taste buds and uh, makes me yearn for what the food will be like when we are at the great banquet as we look forward to, you know, when we share communion. We will be face-to-face -face with our Savior, and I have to believe, even though Whataburger may not be in business up in heaven, there will be something much better. But uh, speaking of restaurants, um, it's been a while since I've been to a Chuck E. Cheese. Does everybody know what Chuck E. Cheese is, the pizza place? You know, you, you go there and you play probably way more than you should for this cardboard-esque pizza, and then you play games and you try to win tickets and then you exchange those in for gimmicky things like those little sticky hands and a sack of marbles. And, you know, if your parents just take you all the time, maybe you'll save up enough and get an iPod or an Xbox. But in my day, it was like maybe a Nintendo. But uh, so it's been a while since I've been to Chuck E. Cheese, but when I was a kid, I loved going to that place. Um, I remember I had, I, th I think it was my like ninth or 10th birthday, we had it at Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, and inevitably, one of my friends got scared by the mechanical band. Anybody been in that room where like Chucky and his buddies are playing keyboard and drums and all that? Like one of my friends was seriously scared of that. I was like, dude, we're like 10. What's, what's the deal? But uh, that's all the setup for where I'm going with this. I do have a point. Um, one of my favorite games at Chuck E. Cheese was Whack-A-Mole. Does anybody remember Whack-A-Mole? Where you stood at this like table and you had a mallet in your hand, and there were all these holes in the table, and like, when you put your token in, these little mole heads would start popping up, and you would try to swing and hit the moles before they popped back down into the hole. Well, right about the time that you reached over here to hit this one, like two more would pop up over here, and inevitably as you're going for those, then two more back over here, and it was impossible to hit every single mole. I mean, you'd have to be like, an octopus with eight arms to, to, to beat that game. I really don't know why I liked that game so much, uh, because it was, it was actually quite frustrating. And I share that because I believe that as followers of Christ, those of us who desire to walk in holiness and desire to live a life that honors God, I think our battle with sin uh, at least for me, it often feels like a crazy game of whack-a-mole. Like right about the time that I feel like God's revealing that I need to, to repent and work on this particular area of my life, and we, we begin to attack that, here comes more. And then as we go over here, here comes more, and it just feels like this crazy, crazy thing where I just cannot seem to win. And it doesn't matter how, try, how hard that I focus, doesn't matter how alert I am or, or aggressive that I am, I just can't seem to take care of all of the sin in my life. And I end up getting frustrated, and if that frustration isn't dealt with, I end up getting infuriated. And if that isn't dealt with, I get discouraged, and over time I just get exhausted. I feel defeated, I feel hopeless. And I just like don't even want to play the game anymore. I don't even want to fight whatsoever. If trying harder 
and focusing on fighting our sin more don't work. How in the world are we supposed to win this battle? How can we defeat sin? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. You've got Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and we're in Colossians. Towards the back of the Bible, we're going to be in chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there's a blue one there in the back of the pew in front of you. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 11 in, in chapter 3 of Colossians today. And as we look at this passage, I believe that it has insight that it gives us an answer to how we can defeat sin in our lives. But I want to pray real quick before we, we read this together, and then I'll ask you to stand with me. Well, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be here today, to get to worship you, to get to be reminded of who your son is, what he's done for us on the cross, by the words that we sing, by sharing in communion, observing your table together. What a blessing it is to get to do that. But I also am very aware that for me and for all of my friends here, you know, when we leave this place, we find that our battles with sin and our, our fight for holiness and righteousness is oftentimes overwhelming. We often feel stuck. We often feel discouraged. And so I just pray, God, that you would use this time as we look at your word to encourage our hearts, to remind us of who you are, what you've done for us, and the love that you have for us in spite of us, in spite of our struggles. I pray that you would, would give us hope today. I pray that you would um, encourage us with your truth. I pray that your spirit would communicate these things to the deep parts of us and that we would cry out to you, that we would turn to you and depend on you and in new ways as a result of it. So take this time, we give it to you, we ask that you would use it for your good, for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and read Colossians 3, 5 through 11 together. Paul writing, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You can take a seat. So Paul, he starts out in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Another way that you could translate that is kill your sin. Those three words, kill your sin. But notice that the fourth word there is therefore. 
He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And one of the basic tools you can have in your belt as you study the Bible is that anytime you see the word therefore, you can ask the question, what is the therefore there for? It's a little cheesy, but it's easy to remember. Anytime you see the word therefore, what you, what, what you should realize is that this statement that we find that word in is hinging on something else. It's following something and pointing back to something that came before. Another way you could translate this is, is he is basically saying, because this is true, kill your sin. Well, what is he talking about? Look back at verses 1 through 4 with me. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in verse 1, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. Past tense, it's already happened. You have been raised with him. And then in verse 3, he says, for you have died. He's not really doing this chronologically. <laughs> but once again, this is past tense. So he's referring to the fact that those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and who have been regenerated, who are born again by faith in Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection, we have died with him, as we read about, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. We have died with him to sin once and for all, and we have been given new life. We have been raised with him. In Romans 6, 1 through 11, we, it, it spells this out. That's the verses we just read together. But in verse 6, he really... Uh, hammers this home by saying, it's the same writer, Paul, our old self, referring to our sin nature, was crucified with Christ in order that, so with the result that, for the, with the purpose that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So by faith in Christ, we are freed from the shackles of sin. We are free from the bondage. Now we actually have the op option. We have the ability to say no to sin. Before our faith, putting our faith in Christ, we did not have that. But because of him, we are set free from that prison. We are unshackled. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And when Paul says, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, kill your sin, he is saying that our ability to kill our sin our command to kill that is rooted in the fact that we're able to do that because of Jesus, because of what he's done and accomplished for us on the cross in our place, in his resurrection, defeating sin, making it possible for us to actually not have to obey it any longer. So our call to defeat the sin that we find in our lives and in our hearts is found by resting and relying on Christ's defeat over sin on the cross. Our victory our hope in walking in this righteousness and holiness and newness of life that Christ has given us is found only in the victory that he has won, his death, his resurrection. So if we want to defeat sin in our own lives, the first thing that is absolutely necessary is we have to remember our identity in Christ and remember that we have been freed from it, that we actually have the option, we have the power, we have the ability because of Christ to win this fight. So it's rooted in the gospel. We have to remember our identity in Christ. Look back at verse 5 with me. I'm going to walk through this. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, 
And then he gives this list of sins. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And he gives the reason of why we're supposed to kill these things in verse 6. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Those who live this way, these things are completely opposed to the character and the righteousness and holiness of God, and he has to judge those things. He has to deal with those because he is just. So if we live this way, we will be met with the wrath of God. But then in verse 7, he goes on, he says, In these, you too once walked, past tense, before we were, we were believers in Christ, when you were living in them. And what he means is, you used to do these things without any care in the world. You didn't even know that they were in opposition to God. You didn't even know that they were sinful. You didn't care before you came to Christ. But they have no place in your life now because you have been changed. You have been born again. You have been brought over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, into the kingdom of light. And this has no business in those who are child, a child of God. And then in verse 8 he goes on. He says, but now you must put them all away. And then he launches into another list. And this time we get anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And then in 9 and 10 he says, very, very specifically, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, I want to point out a couple of things in this list. Some of the sins and in, this, in these two lists are behaviors. They are external expressions of sin. They are actions or words that are sinful. In the first list, we see sexual immorality, which is describing any sexual behavior other than that of a husband and his wife. And then in the second list, we see slander, which includes things like gossip and, and spreading rumors, th talk that is destructive and aimed at tearing other people down. Then we find obscene talk, which is language that is profane, that it dishonors God and others. And then in verse 9, do not lie to one another. All forms of deception, dishonesty, any type of speech that is untrue. In today's Old Testament reading, Proverbs 12, 22, which Matt read for us, said, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Teaching us that God hates lying and that it is utterly destructive. He knows that. Now, all of these things that I just covered, those are all fruits of sin in our life. They are expressions, they are outward manifestations of our our proclivity, our brokenness, our fallenness. And we are called to kill them because they dishonor God and they dishonor others. And I want to take a second and kind of talk about how this is really dangerous for us as a church. You know, if we are running around in this kind of behavior, speaking in ways that are dishonoring to God and, and harmful and aim to tear down one another, lying to one another, or engaging in any type of sexual immorality, that will completely undermine what God has and wants to do in and through us as a church. 
You want to see our trust and our ability to be known and love one another fly out the window? Start engaging in this stuff and just get, let it go unchecked. He knows that this will absolutely snuff out our ability to be the church internally, to love one another and be what he wants us to be internally, but also externally. Our witness will completely be killed if we let this kind of stuff happen in us. And some of this is like really easy and obvious to know, like, you know, especially sexual, immoral, sexual immorality. Like, okay, I can avoid that one. But this obscene talk and lying to one another, that stuff is more subtle. And it happens in ways where, you know, we're in a prayer circle and we bring up a prayer request when in really, in our heart, if we're honest, part of that motivation is I want somebody else to know what I know about this person that's dark. Because, you know, it's really... On the outside, I want you to pray for this person because I care about them, but there's a tinge in there. You want somebody else to know that drama. You want somebody else to know somebody else is struggling because it makes you feel better about yourself. This stuff is subtle. We have to be really, really careful and watch it and kill it. These fruits of sin left unchecked will ruin us. They will ruin us personally. They will ruin us collectively, communally as a church, we will be destroyed over time if we do not submit ourselves to the Lord in these ways pertaining to these things. So if we want to defeat our battle with, if we want to win our battle with sin, if we want to defeat it, we must remember our identity in Christ. We must remember the gospel. But secondly, we have to actually be actively killing sin's fruit. The outward expressions, the manifestations of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our wickedness, we have to be killing that if we want to defeat sin. But these lists, they don't just include these external behaviors and these outward actions. They also include internal sinful desires. They include thoughts and motivations. They include things that are matters of the heart Look, at, look back with the li- at the list with me. In verse 5, we see impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Jump down to verse 8. In the second list, we see anger, wrath, malice. These are all sins that can be in our heart and people not even see them. They can be things that are in our mind and people aren't aware of them. Others don't see that but they're still dangerous and they're still destructive. And if they let go left unchecked, what happens is they start manifesting themselves as fruit. And we start to see that they start to take outward form. They don't, you know, the outward sin doesn't just start there, it starts inside. It starts in our hearts and in our minds and these kinds of things. And as those who have died to sin, we are not just called to kill the fruit of our sin, we are also called to kill the root of our sin. Because if we don't kill our sin at its roots, we will continue to see it bear fruit again and again and again. And I think I might have used this illustration before, and you probably have heard it before, but I think it's a good one. Our sin is a lot like the weeds that grow in your backyard. If you come to my house, there are a lot of them in my backyard. If you try to deal with your sin at the fruit level only instead of attacking its roots, it's like mowing over the weeds in your backyard. Every Saturday when you get back out there, that weed is back 
because it actually didn't go anywhere. You just trimmed it down. You just mowed right over it, and now it's got an inch or two at the bottom there. If we deal with sin at a fruit level, it just keeps coming back. It keeps growing back again and again. We have to attack it at its source, at its root, if we want to see it change. Just like if you have weeds in your yard, if you want those to not come back, you have to go out there and you have to rip them out by their roots, right? You have to tear them out and destroy the, the, the source where they're drawing the nutrients that are feeding them. You have to lift them out of that to where they can no longer draw that in and live. And our sin is the same way. We have to get it out completely. It has to be dug out. And the way that that happens is when we renew our minds with the truth of Scripture so that the water of the Word flushes out the sin and the wickedness that is in there. We have to invite God into the broken and wicked places of our heart and let Him do the difficult work of redeeming and transforming us. The surgery that it takes to get that stuff out of there by the power of the Spirit. So sin is one of those things, you, you can't manage it. You can't just groom it. You have to rip it out. You have to destroy it. You have to kill it at its source. Now sin is, is like a weed, but I want to I be very, very clear on something. If your yard is full of weeds, it might be a little embarrassing if somebody sees that, but it really, you know, no harm, no foul. You can kind of live your life and be okay if you've got a few weeds in your yard. Sin may be like weeds, but it is much more destructive, and it is deadly. I think the better way to think of it, you know, in Scripture we see Satan described as a roaring lion. I think that sin is like a lion in our lives. And when we try to manage it or just tame it or just kind of keep it under wraps and kind of keep it at a level that is, is, is just, you know, acceptable or, or, you know, not really fully expressed to where other people see it, if we just kind of keep it inside, it's like inviting a lion into your home. Even if you think it's tame, what happens over time, how many times are we on the, see on the news, whether it's, I don't remember those magicians, the one who got mauled by the tiger, or you, think, you hear stories in, in, of these people who, you know, they got that pet, uh, they got this exotic animal as a pet when it was little, and it was trained. They spent $5,000 just making sure that this thing would be friendly. And then 12 years later, the thing eats somebody. Sin is like that. You don't welcome it into your life. You don't provide it quarters. You don't give it room to stay and grow and fester and develop deeper and deeper roots in your heart and in your mind. In, in your mind. Like the people who find out the hard way when their lion eats them, that will happen to us if we left, let, let our sin go unchecked. It will kill us. And the same thing is true for us. It's, it's true as individuals, and it's true for us as a church. So if we've got any type of stuff going on in our heart, even just tiny bits of bitterness or anger or resentment towards somebody else, what starts as something small and what you think is like, you know, it's not really that bad, can develop over time and grow into something that will consume you and then consume the body. You know, nobody lashes out and does something really hurtful to somebody like that. Usually it's stuff that's been building and building and building. 
And so today we need to take, take a moment and, and look inside and, and analyze our own hearts and our own minds and ask the Spirit to see, are we harboring anything towards anybody else? Are there brothers and sisters in this room that maybe five years ago they said something to you that you've never forgiven them for and you need to reconcile that? You need to go and, and, and have the difficult conversation, obviously starting with the Lord, but maybe talking to that person. You know, this kind of stuff is dangerous, and it's so, so elusive. It's so lurking underneath. And yeah, every now and then you kind of start to see it, or you can feel it well up in your heart or in your mind. But you cannot let it go unchecked. It will eventually destroy you. John Owen, who is, a, I believe, a Puritan theologian. I want to say that's, that's accurate. Is that true, Carissa? Yeah. Um, I, know, I know he's a theologian, I just didn't know what era. But uh, he's a Puritan who, who his kind of expertise or the area that he studied and wrote about the most was mortification of sin. Just kind of what this passage is talking about. The, the verse that he really unpacked through his writings was Romans 8.13. And, and his summary for all of the work that he did, you could dwindle that down to one sentence. And it's simply this. John Owen's conclusion after looking at that is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I like that because it shows that it is just one or the other. There is no middle ground. If you think it's in the middle, what's going to happen is it will end up killing us. And so what we get from that, what, it, what is helpful about that is that it reminds us that this is something that is very serious, something that we can't just toy around with. So if we want to defeat our sin, it begins with remembering our identity in Christ, focusing on who we are because of him, because of the gospel. Secondly, we have to be killing sin's fruit. And then the third thing is we've got to be killing sin's root. Now the last thing I want to, want to talk about is that I say be killing rather than just kill because this is, a, this is an ongoing process, right? Kind of like whack-a-mole, when you think you've got that one going on, here comes another one and here comes another one. Throughout our lives, this side of glory, this side of eternity, when we receive our glorified bodies and we are like Christ and we are free from the presence of sin, not just the power of sin, I mean, that, that's an important distinction. Right now, we are freed from the power of sin, but we are not yet free of the presence of sin. And so we are called to be killing it because it is a constant battle. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, you have put on the new self, and this is the part I want to focus on. He says, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we have put on Christ. We have received a heart of flesh. We've gotten rid of that heart of stone. We received the heart of flesh. We have been set free from sin's enslavement. We now have the power and ability to walk in righteousness and to actually see the Lord kill our sin. But it's an ongoing thing. We are being renewed in the image of Christ. We are being changed. We are being sanctified. We are day by day becoming more like Jesus. God sees us as he sees Christ. He sees us as justified. He sees us as righteous. He sees us as holy, as blameless. But we are becoming that practically as we live each and every day. And so it's an ongoing thing. 
as we come to know God more and more and as we read his word and seek his face, we're being restored into the image of Christ. And our fight, sorry to break it to you if you didn't know this already, our fight with sin will not end until Christ either comes back or calls us home. You know, you, you, if, you, if you listen or, or read uh, books uh, um, from some of, the most, some of the most giants of the faith in our day, like think of your favorite radio preacher or your favorite uh, Christian writer, and what you'll hear from, from them, I've heard this from at least two or three myself, is that, you know, the, the, if you, if, when asked, what is the most difficult thing in your pursuit of Christ? Almost without exception, those guys will respond, the slowness of sanctification. And we're talking about men who are 70 plus years old, and their response to what is most difficult is, no matter how hard I pursue Christ, I'm still moving inch by inch by inch. No matter how hard I pray, no matter how much I invite the Lord into my life, I still see sin there. It does not go away. And it's frustrating, and it's exhausting. But we don't have to lose heart. We don't have to give up hope, because each and every day God is present with us, and as we invite him into it with us, he will move us closer and closer to the image of Christ. He will conform us into the character of Jesus. He will free us up if we invite him in, and we constantly are killing our fruit of our sin and the root of our sin. The challenge for us is that most of us, we want to work and surrender at a behavior level. We have a lot harder time surrendering at a heart level and at a mind level. And so, the challenge is to, to, to come before the Lord and invite him into those deep, difficult places of brokenness and trust him to, to do the work that he alone can do. And even though it's hard not to give up because he is faithful and he will see us through. Before we close, I just want to say this. If, if you find yourself today, you're listening to all of this and 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 you come to this conclusion, you're like, man, I, I've, never, I've never been able to, to fight sin. I just don't see in my life any ability to, to, to even begin to work on this stuff. I want you to know that it's really important that you don't hear from me today that your challenge is not just to manage your sin. If, if somebody is here today and you come to the realization that you have never trusted in Christ, you don't have a personal relationship with him, as Woody was talking about in the communion um, talk. You realize that you have never surrendered your life to him. If you try to go into this battle and fight your sin, you will lose because you do not have what it takes. You have not been given the heart of flesh that it requires that is required to honor God and to fight sin. You have not been freed from sin if you have not trusted Christ. So don't hear, hear me today and think now your duty is to go and kill your sin. If you've never trusted Christ, it starts with trusting him. That's, that's the only way you even have a shot at this. 
And if you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk about that with you. There's others here. You can grab any of us, and we would love to talk about that with you. But as long as we remember our identity in Christ, and we decide day by day to be killing our sin at its fruit and its root, and we're trusting the Lord to do that, not depending on our own strength, but inviting Him in, surrendering to Him, we will see victory happen. It might be a lot slower than you want it to be. It might be a lot more difficult than you want it to be. But He is true to His Word, and we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. Don't give up. Stay in the fight. God is faithful. He will do this. He will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.